This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, KDC of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, how are you getting on, mate? Um... <laughs> It's been tough, mate. I'm not going to lie. Normally, I come on here with quite a sunny disposition, very much a glass half full kind of guy. But, like, this week has been very much ups and downs, and the ups ended roughly around Sunday afternoon. Everything since then has been a bit rubbish, really, to be honest. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of that, I'm assuming, stems from the transfer window. And Liverpool obviously didn't move. We are recording the morning after the night before. Um, recording on a Wednesday this week rather than Thursday. So, obviously Liverpool didn't buy anybody in terms of midfielder, at least. Bought Cody Gapo earlier in the window, but no midfielders. Uh, certain other clubs were very, very active. So, considering the time and the date that we're recording this, this is kind of going to be, I suppose, a bit of a transfers pod. Uh, why didn't Liverpool move? Who did move? Moves that we like. And then I suppose just a, a bit of a brief touch on uh, how Liverpool have performed lately and what we can expect for the rest of the season, really. But, yeah, in terms of Liverpool, Mo, we didn't buy a midfielder. I did ask you earlier in the month whether you thought it was going to happen or not. I think that you was leaning towards no, and you was proven right. Yeah, I kind of went on a journey with this because before January started when we signed Gakpo, I was very much thinking this is the start of something because to have got one move in so early and to have been so decisive so soon after the news around Diaz's injury or re-injury, I thought, okay, then this is a clear sign of how we are going to act in this window. We are going to be decisive. We're going to cover moves. We're going to prioritise this season as we need to. And that absolutely didn't happen. None of it happened. And we're going to come on to the reasons why. I don't think there is one reason, as with most problems with Liverpool, it seems to be accumulation of reasons. But it's really frustrating, particularly when you can see that the reasons why it's necessary are borne out time and again, not only in the games that we play, but also in the moves of the teams in and around us. Yeah, well, I I have a little I, I have a little bit of an understanding as to well not an understanding but I'm trying to work out why Liverpool didn't move and um, some people might have saw me tweets the other day I I, tw- I was tweeting someone and, um, I think if you look at Liverpool's targets what what has been reported it's been reported that it's obviously Jude Bellingham and Matthias Nunes right we can't get either of them this month. In, in, in terms of the winter January. So if I I was starting to think it might be it might be a little bit canatic in the sense that we have two targets virtually done and lined up potentially. Can't get them until the summer. So we just have to grin and bear it for another six months. Um if that was the case, Mo, would you be okay with that? Um yes, with a caveat. The caveat is that our league position at the end of the season doesn't affect those two deals. Because yeah, that's a good point. that feels like a gamble if it does. A massive, massive gamble. And I see where they're going with this. 
But I do think it funnels back to one of the other problems in as much as the pool of players who they believe can bring the team forward is smaller than the pool of players that I believe can bring the team forward. And you look at the profile of Nunes and Bellingham and you think that those two players together would bring a lot to our team, but that would not solve all the problems because you need someone to play behind them. And I feel like that point, as much as it appears Stefan Bajsetic has come into the first team record and is pretty much going to start as many games as possible, um, I think it's probably a bit of a risk to expect him at his age, at this stage of his career, to just uh, run the table, as they say in America, and just play the rest of the season at such a high tempo and play to such a high level consistently. It's uh, it's a stretch. Yeah. I mean, early in the season, right towards the end of the window when we signed Arthur on loan, at that point in the season, Liverpool needed bodies, really. Liverpool just kind of needed numbers because everyone was crippled. <laughs> uh, we had half the midfield injured, uh, kids were coming in, and that was kind of the ongoing issue, really, which is why we, we, we loaned Arthur. Um, this, th- this window is a little bit different because Liverpool have 10 midfielders at the club at the minute. In Harvey Elliott, Fabinho, Jordan Henderson, James Milner, Thiago, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Jones, Keita, Bessetic and Arthur. And that's not even including Fabio Carvalho, who is a bit of an in-between at the minute. Um, so, not, I think all of those are pretty much fit, apart from Arthur, who's supposedly on a, on, on, on a return soon. Um, so Liverpool are in a position this month at least where they they no longer really need bodies quantity wise we're fine it's just kind of quality wise which is a bigger that's a bigger problem though because it not only is it harder um, within the dressing room dynamic because it's not just saying I need to bring someone in to help you it's that I need to bring someone in to replace you that's a very different message. Hmm. And it's a hard thing, for, it was a hard line for Jürgen to walk, particularly in public when he's talking about what he wants and what he needs. But the the, the facts bear them out within, the, you're looking at stats, if you're looking at the eye test. The simple fact is we've had, what, three, three games now with this new set of midfield. And in all three games, the moment those three broke up, Everything fell apart. Like, we've got 10 midfielders, Josh. We've only got three of them who can play in the way we want them to play. That's not good. No, no, I agree. I agree. But then if, if you're signing even more to add to the 10, it's just it's just a lot of players, mate. It's like 10 midfielders is a lot. And I've, I've people are saying, like, you know, we need another four and things like this. We need four midfielders or whatever. But, like, let's say in the summer, Milner, Ox and Keita, all leave because of their expired contracts and Arthur goes back to Juventus. Then we'd be left with six, right? And then say Nunes comes in with Bellingham. Then we're back up to eight. And eight midfield eight central midfielders is a lot again. So I think Liverpool are in a position at the minute where the I mean it some people have speculated, you know, sell sell Fabinho and, and sell Henderson and things like that. And that that's that's different territory altogether if you're gonna start going down that route. But in terms of I just don't 
envisaged that happening. It could, I suppose, but I, mean, I think I don't think Klopp will sanction like a full, full overhaul where you get in eighteen new mid midfield players and sell forty of them. And I don't think no. it'll be as drastic as that. Um, no, go on. I think what one thing that I would have liked to see, or maybe would have thought could have happened, because we are far from the only team who are looking at midfielders here. And there are obviously lots of people shopping at the big table, but then when the big clubs buy those players, those teams need to replace them. So it goes down and down and down the food chain. What we didn't see from all those other clubs who need a midfielder was any of them testing the waters for any of our midfielders who are six months from the end of their contract and probably could be got on a cut price deal. You didn't hear about anyone sniffing around Milner. We didn't hear about anyone sniffing around Oxley chamberlain we heard a little bit around Cater, but that was all in terms of us using him as a swap deal to sweeten Dortmund to get Bellingham. There was no other clubs interested in those players. If there had been, it would have been a much more interesting dilemma. Club might have had to actually be a bit more ruthless. But you look across the other teams and you think instantly of the whole Joao Cancelo situation. And clearly, that move doesn't happen if Bayern Munich aren't showing an interest. So that part of it also needs to be there. And let's face it, they haven't really put themselves in the shop window this season, have they? <laughs> no, it's a good point. But I think I think it's a tricky one, though, because I, I obviously am of the belief, and I've been of the belief now for probably a year, that Liverpool need a central midfielder, obviously, and it's uh, and it's, it's quality that Liverpool need, uh, not specifically quantity. We don't just need bodies in the door. We need players who are going to make a a real difference to Liverpool's performances. Um, so, I, th- I think considering that, g- given that we're lining up Bellingham and Nunes for the summer, whether that'll happen or not, I don't know. I, d- I don't really... I, 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 the only way I can understand what, what's happened that we haven't bought anyone this month is is that dynamic. You know, I, I just kind of hope that Liverpool haven't moved because the summer is kind of sorted. That's that's my hope, and if that's not the case, and if it's still a tight rope with Bellingham, then I'm concerned because um, it is kind of getting to a point where it's a bit. It, it is a bit like we're kind of like floating in the middle of the sea on a raft, mm. and Jude Bellingham is kind of like the only savior for us, um, and it feels a little bit like. Um, all eggs in one basket. I've seen that said a few times, actually. And that's a dangerous thing when you said itself that we need quantity. The other thing that we need to touch on is who exactly is directing this raft? Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> As it stands, I mean, there's been a lots of news and headlines come off the Paul Gorse piece around Liverpool's search for a new sporting director to replace Julian Ward. And it's maybe not quite as sensationalist as some of the quotes coming off it have been, but there are two lines in there that really caught my eye. And one of them is that um, it's the early detailing of Ward's departure has afforded those involved in the decision-making process ample time to think about the next move. Fair point, and well done, Julian Ward, for doing that. Two paragraphs later... The process of identifying a new sporting director has yet to get underway, it is believed. Why? <laughs> What's happened? And well, if the reason is because Mike Gordon and all of the more important decision makers 
are more interested in the sale of the club and all of the recriminations around that, then that's a problem. Because we are sitting here, all the discussions we've had so far have been under the guidance and the idea that Liverpool have decided not to move rather than they aren't in position to move. Because as I'm sure we'll come on to, there's been a couple of midfielders who've moved across this summer window, uh, this January transfer window. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should have tried. We should have at least tried. And I don't know how much of it is we are, you know, safeguarding a large part of budget for these summer moves, which would be fine to an extent. And how much of it is we're just not in position to capitalize because we've got all of our key decision makers looking elsewhere. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Well, this is partly why I think we might have the summer arranged, um, transfers wise, because over the past year, Liverpool have spent and and have bought expensive players in terms of Luis Diaz, Cody Gakpo, Darwin Nunes. That's a lot of money, and it's all on the attack. Um, and the midfield is is kind of being ignored, neglected, whatever word you want to use. And I just kind of thinking like, surely there's a plan in place for this because you're just constantly avoiding the massive elephants, the ma- the massive leak. In in you know it's it feels and it feels a little bit like considering Ward is saving his notice, Ian Graham saving his notice, FSG considering the sale, Mike Gordon stepped away. It feels a little bit like the roof is coming in. And and Klopp and Linders are both holding the roof up, kind of like until the summer, basically. Um, and uh, it it's just kind of a, a little bit concerning how bad it could get. Like, are, are we actually going to finish bottom half of the table? You know, things like that. Um, and and what effect is that going to have on the decisions that come afterwards? I mean, even in the scenario where those two are locked up and yet we do finish that low. There are other things that need to be done in the, and it's going to make it a lot more difficult. And I mean, the simple fact is, is that if we are still trying to look for investment at that stage, if that's not locked up yet, finishing mid table is not going to help that either. And mm-hmm. there's a reason that that's been so important is because it's apparently necessary. I mean, another thing that came out of Paul Gore's piece, he didn't say it, but very much intimated. There are people within the um, insiders within the club who believe that the model they've been using might not work anymore. And what that means, we don't know. Are they going to change tack? Are they just going to get out? We still don't know. They probably still don't know. And that, again, in itself, is a problem. Well, the, the thing is, the, the, there's a lot of talk about this model and it's not working and Liverpool, and it's it's past its sell-by date or whatever, Liverpool are growing it, whatever you want to call it. Um. I don't think it's necessarily that. I just think it's very easily tweaked whereby rather than it being strict sell to buy and it's like, you know, there's no deviation from that. Can it not just be sell to buy but if we need 50 million, you can have 50 million? You know, a bit like essentially like a Tony Bloom or or, or like a, um, you know, Real Madrid do it sometimes. Real Madrid sell a lot of players for great prices. And reinvest that into the, the the younger models and things like that. There's nothing really wrong with doing that. The issue is sometimes it can get to a point like it's got now with Liverpool, where there's kind of nobody left to sell, 
everybody's old, nobody's going to fetch a decent price yet. You need investments in the squad. And in this kind of situation, um, Liverpool obviously need a bit of investment from the ownership. But for the most part, over the past couple of years, that hasn't overly been needed, really. I mean, Liverpool just contested for a quadruple six months ago. Um, and if... Say for example, I always I always use this as an example. But if around the time Bruno Gimenez went to Newcastle United, if he came to Liverpool instead, you know maybe this is a bit different. Or or maybe if Real Madrid land Kylian Mbappe in the summer, and they focus a little bit less on two many and two many many ends up at Anfield, again maybe it's a bit different. So although a lot of it, I, I do understand the concerns about the model and the concerns around FSG and things like that. I don't overly think the past year suggests that Liverpool haven't are unwilling to spend money. It's more a case of like this weird avoidance of the midfield and this um, com- absolute commitment to the likes of Henderson and Milner and Cater and Ox and players mm-hmm. like this who just for a couple of years now maybe haven't really been at the level required to start every week for Liverpool. Um and maybe the success or the, the very near immortal success that we had last season has kind of clouded the judgment a little bit because it feels more like strategic decisions regarding squad planning yeah. has has been a false just as much as a lack of spending or whatever. I do. And I do think that to a certain extent, there are large parts of the success of last season which have hurt us this season, not just in terms of the physical, mental fatigue, of going through it, getting so close to doing everything and not, but also in what it represented. And like you say, it kind of made us look like things were fine when they weren't. Because I think if you look back to the time, the 18-19 season and the 19-20 season, just before winning the title and then the title run, the way we were in that season, it wasn't so much that we... We, we were able to outlast other teams. We weren't blowing teams away 2-3-0. There were lots of 2-1s. There were lots of times where the games were close and then we just outlasted or found that extra bit of quality or were able to keep going in a way that won the game. Now, we can't do that. And 2020, last season, we weren't really doing that either. If you look at the way we were winning games, it was still 2-1, but it wasn't outlasting teams. It was the bench. It was the depth that did it. And it was having those players available to come off the bench all the time. And that we don't have. And intensity, we don't have. We have neither right now. So the idea that the 2021-22 season was more of the same of what we'd had before is a bit of a mirage, because it wasn't. It was literally the only season under Klopp where we didn't have any massive injuries. And that's what brought us so close to infinity. Yeah. But the problem is, is when you're banking on that, you're thinking, oh, well, we can do that again. But the, the the luck that we had with injuries was just as unlikely, I think, if you look at it across the whole time and the tenure of Klopp. So it's kind of put us in this position where we're thinking that these guys can do this, but the reality is, is that they probably can't. Well, you've just touched on a really important point there, actually. You know, despite Liverpool's neglect of the midfield department in the transfer market over the years, which is, you know, absolute amateurish, really, considering since 2018, we've signed one player for the centre midfield, and that was a 29-year-old version of Thiago. 
So that's extremely that's full amateur stuff that um to not expect that to eventually bite you. But you do have to throw in there the, the injuries, you know. Throughout the season, I mean Canati has just picked up a fresh one, which is really annoying. Jota, Diaz, Firmino, uh, Darwin's had the one or two hamstring issues, Kate has been himself, uh, Thiago, first time for the season was was problems. Ox been himself, hasn't he? Yeah. Um Henderson's had one or two small ones, I think. Van Dyke's not out at the minute with a hamstring. Um it's been ridiculous when you think about it. And I don't know what what they do behind the scenes. I'm I'm not qualified to speak in any way, shape or form about medical stuff. But and I don't know if this is just me being a bit biased towards my own club, but it doesn't feel like other clubs have from no. these kinds of things. Like last season was a relative anomaly, really, when you look at it, because the season before we had a collapse, I think. Now we've got a collapse now. Um, and I just think it's it, it needs addressing whatever the issue is there because that, that's had a massive impact on Liverpool's season just as much as the, the midfield. It has, 100%. I think in terms of are we worse than everyone else, I have some mates who are Leicester fans who would probably say that they have it just as bad as we <laughs> And they've had a few tough years. But the point Chelsea is... As well. Yeah, Chelsea as well. But I mean, when you've got loads of players, the law of average just says you're going to have loads of injuries. But... <laughs> The thing is, if you look at it, like you said yourself, across the whole time, Klopp, last season was the odd one out. So we tried to address it on so many different ways. We've changed doctors, we've changed teams, we've changed the way we train, all of those things. None of them seem to have worked it out. So I have sympathy with them in as much as they are trying to find a solution. However, taking into account that last season was clearly the exception, and having injuries is the norm, I feel like we need to do a better job of accounting for that. So whether that be having a bigger squad because you've got lots of injured players or whether it be having to make tough decisions around players who are always injured. Now, again, we have to have a little bit of context in there. I do believe that if Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain hadn't got injured when he did in the summer, he would have been sold. But... That still doesn't kind of look at the, the the new contracts, the long contracts that we've given to players in their late 20s who've got a, bad, a spotty injury histories at best. And some of these ruthless decisions needed to have been made and I think would have made a difference. Whether it's too late for that now, we don't know because so many players we are leaving, are losing on free contracts. We're not getting money in for those players. And it's happened quite a lot on the clock. Like, we've, we we talk about the money that we've recouped in sales. The majority of those are players who weren't in the first team. These, were, these weren't players who were getting lots of minutes. These were players who we no longer needed. And that's good to get a lot of money for players who aren't being used. But what that does mean is that you're not, you've got a lot of players who are being used who eventually you're just going to let leave for free, which is what's happened a lot. And, I mean, if you think just in the recent time, think Sturridge, Lalana, uh, Juan Alden, uh, Emre Chan, these are all players who were bought for large amounts of money who walked out the door for nothing. And you can say, yes, we got money out of them. We, we got play out of them. But then you look at everyone's raising their eyebrows about City and Jarrah Cancelo. 
they're going to be getting 60 million euros out of a guy who's contributed to a lot of success for them, but is also 28 years old and wasn't getting in the first team for whatever reason. Yeah, the only thing I'd say on that is I think when when Wijnaldum left, I I had no real issues with that. Um, and I, I we could have sold him a season before for like 25 million or something like that, but I think we got more value out of him by keeping him. And I think Lallana had the same. If Firmino goes this summer, again, the same. Um, so I don't overly mind using players to a certain level and then letting them go for free rather than extending. I, I don't overly have that much of a problem with that. Um, but Liverpool's problem is that kind of like we've aged as a group. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, you, you mentioned uh, giving contracts to aging 20-odd-year-old players. Um, I think it's interesting that before we agreed the deal for Henderson, the new contract for Henderson, if that hadn't have happened, he'd be leaving the club for free in about six months. And if you watch, if you look at the way he's played this season, that probably looks about right. That probably would have been fine. I don't think many people would have had an issue with that and he would have had a solid career at Anfield. And just as he was on his decline, he leaves. But... Mm. That additional two years was it or whatever? Really curious one for me. Um, I, don't get me wrong; I could understand it at the time because he offers all the things, doesn't he? But it's well, necessary. The, the, the only question I have in that, and I agree with you, and I I think exactly the same. The only question I have within that is: Would he and um, would we have been as tight knit a group? And able to go so close to all we did last season mm. with him, with the knowledge that he was leaving, that the captain was leaving because the club didn't give him what he wanted. Yeah. Like, you don't know what kind of influence that's going to have within the group. And I feel like maybe that was a large part of Klopp's reasoning for going to bat for him for that longer contract is that he wanted to maintain that harmony. And he was looking at it and thinking the worst case scenario if we say no. Obviously, hindsight is looking at us saying, well, there'd have been quite some good out of saying no. But I think within that, that's why you have sometimes these decisions that look uncomprehensible down the line. But at the time, you can understand it. But also, off on a slight tangent here, this is another problem with Klopp being involved, too involved with transfers and contracts because he has so many emotional ties to his players and it makes hard decisions more difficult. I'm gonna keep yeah. saying it. <laughs> no, no, we've touched on it. We've touched on it. So I, I don't know where. I don't know. It's an insistent one. But aside from Liverpool, obviously other clubs did do business this summer. Eh, uh, this this winter. Sorry. So before we move on, we're, we're going to touch on some deals that we find interesting or that we like or whatever, and we're going to obviously offer our opinions on some of the major deals. The one that we obviously can't avoid is a uh, 120 million euros for Enzo Fernandez. Chelsea paid on deadline day. I mean, wow, <laughs> that is an insane, insane amount of money to to chill out on a deadline day. I mean, what do you think of that one? Um, I was I was out last night. I was I went for a meal with some friends, and we had a great time. And it got to about. 10.30 and I thought let me let me just check 
because I've not looked at what's happened. Let me just check. And I saw that, and instantly my mood dropped because <laughs> it's. I thought we got. I thought we got away with it. I thought he just about survived, but no, they got him. And yeah, I think he's a very good player. I think that's a lot of money, and I feel like we've seen already the players who come in for a lot of money, particularly transfer records in this country at least. It's something that they they don't let it all go. It does. It follows you around. I mean, Jack Grealish is still his hearing about how much he costs, and that was a good two seasons ago. And so it's going to make it more difficult for him. But in terms of the quality he has and the ability to improve their team, it's it's a fantastic move for Chelsea, and I'm gutted. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, it would have been a lot funnier if he was bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but unfortunately, he is a really good player. You look at the list of all of those, the biggest transfers, and it gives you some hope because a lot of them didn't turn out well. You think about Lukaku twice, uh, mm. Pogba, Harry Maguire, Sancho, jury's still out. But then there is the anomaly in there, Virgil van Dijk. And I feel like Enzo has the potential to be another one of those anomalies. Yeah, well, we will see on that one. I mean, you never know. And I would never underestimate Chelsea's ability to um, experience the decline of a top player, basically. I mean, I think they're very good at doing that based on the past couple yes. of years. Um, but he's a, a really good player. And they do need they do need sense of midfielders. And Fernandez is very good at a lot of things. We touched on him earlier in the early in the year, I think, um, maybe a couple of months ago. Top player, a lot of money though. Um, but it's gonna be interesting to see how he gets on and it just kind of captures how mad Chelsea are. Uh, what are your thoughts on Mudrich? I again I think he's a player of a lot of talent. And the interesting thing for me though is with both of those guys, is that there isn't a massive sample size. And if you are outlaying that those large sums of money, normally you want to be sure. You want to be able to say this is less likely to go wrong because we've got lots of data that says this is much more, this guy is going to achieve these metrics, achieve these marks, et cetera, et cetera. But Madrid hasn't played a lot. Enzo hasn't played a massive amount. I think 120 for club and country in his career or something. But they're both really talented players. I think with Mudrik, what I like about him is that he's able to change direction and accelerate at such a rate that it really does scare defences. So to the point where he affects how they defend. So they're going to give him more space so he doesn't just come in and go past him, which is going to help all of his teammates. Obviously, they have to use him correctly. They have to find the system that works with all these players which is going to be Chelsea's problem, has been Chelsea's problem. The other interesting thing as well, I saw a stat today saying Benfica are the only club who've ever sold two players for more than 100 million. And currently they're both for Chelsea. So <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Joao Felix is at Chelsea tells you that these big deals don't always work out well, but it will also be very interesting to see how they corral all of these millions worth of talent yeah it's going to be interesting to follow Mudrick actually to see how his numbers get impacted by the Premier League and things like that but obviously he is absolutely rapid he is um 
going to offer pace, which which is to an extent what Chelsea's attack hasn't have hasn't had in terms of penetration and things like that. Um, more of a creator than a scorer, I think, based on his numbers. But again, another really young player who's just costed an absolute bomb. Um, and Chelsea seems to be getting away with it by giving these players fourteen-year contracts. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how he does. But Graham Potter has a serious job on his hands. Um, what about Anthony Gordon to Newcastle United? Forty million. Well, I think as we, as we sit here today, that looks like a better deal for Everton than for Newcastle because I do think he's a good player. I do think that he can get into their rotation. I don't think he's a guaranteed starter when you look at the, who they're playing up front at the moment and who the, the, the form of Almiron, for example. But at the same time, it's a young player, so they can look at it as an investment. He's a homegrown player, so he's going to be very handy within their squad. They've lost Shelby, so they need to replace one. So you can see the, the methods behind bringing him in. And they clearly thought that that extra money was worth it because they have overpaid. I think it's fair to say they've overpaid. But for Everton, all of the benefits that they may have got from getting the good end of the deal financially have been wasted because they didn't bring anyone in. <laughs> for the second year in a row, they brought yeah. in a new manager too late into the January window to sign any players. Yeah. I think Danny Gordon one's interesting, actually. I think a lot of people don't see anything in him. Uh, a lot of people are very confused by by the clamour around him and things like that. And if you look at his numbers as well, there's kind of nothing there, really. But I think I do I think a lot of that stems from just Everton being awful. Um, but I think if you look at Gordon as a player and what he offers like in terms of his profile and things like that, I don't actually think it's that bad of a deal for Newcastle. I don't think they've massively overpaid either, actually. you know, Because he's, he's English, he's homegrown. He's only 21 years old. Um, I think it's reasonably fair to say he's established himself in the Premier League now, so he's relatively proven in that sense. And I always remember the game uh, at Anfield like a year or so ago. Obviously, we played Everton. And he was kind of a one-man attack on his own. He, he was just single-handedly getting Everton into our half like without any support whatsoever. And I think in that sense, you know, he's... He, he, Keen on a counter attack and things like that. Good ball carrier, um, good on the physical side in terms of you know being able to cover ground and things like that. And Newcastle have got a lot of those players like Almadon and Willock and Joe Linton, players who are really physical and um, good in that sense. Really, so I, I think Gordon is. I don't think he's particularly going to be a world beater at any point. And I'm not sure what his ceiling is in terms of like goals over the course of a season. I can't really see him ever being a player who scores all kinds of goals, really. Um, but as an attacking player who's, who can take part in your squad, I don't overly mind that one. Um, he, he does feel very Eddie Howe. Yes. And <laughs> very Newcastle, I think, if you think about the, the way that he, he plays the game, the, the passion that is pouring out of him, sometimes a little bit too much. Feels very much like the kind of kid that they're going to take to up there. So, yeah, you, I can say, like I say, I can see a world where it's a success. And talking about the money, I do think it's probably a bit much. But when you weigh it up against the fact that they've got another very good young talent in Harrison Ashby of West Ham for three mm. million pounds, I think if you'd say the two of them together would cost forty-five million, I think you'd probably say that's about fair enough. 
Yeah. Uh, any other players that have moved over the past month who you would want to flag? Players you want to highlight, give a tip your to or whatever? Well, in terms of players, less so in terms of teams, I've been thinking. So teams who I think have done well and, and improved themselves. I want to give a shout out to Southampton because they left it late, but I think that they've got some real quality in there. They like dropped 60, nearly 60 million pounds on four players. Um, they got Kamaldine Sulemana, who's been very good for Ren and was quite good for Ghana in the World Cup. Uh, Orsic, uh, another guy who was actually quite good for Croatia in the World Cup. And then the ton of two young guys with potential, uh, Paul Nwachu, who's come in from the Belgian League, and Carlos Alcaraz has come in from South America. So they've looked like they've addressed what they needed to address because they are in relegation trouble. And when you compare it, like I just said, to Everton, who've literally done nothing and sat on their hands, that might be a real key advantage. And then going across Europe, uh, I think Bayern Munich have had an absolute blinder. <laughs> like, to come back from the, the craziness of losing Manuel Neuer to a skiing accident, they just went across to another one of their rivals and plucked probably one of the best goalkeepers in the league in Jan Sommer for 7 million quid. Um, they basically got Joao Cancelo on loan at the moment, so he's not going to determine, he's not going to disturb their finances. They got Daily Blind on a free as well, who basically just can't... That, that, that's a six-month contract, isn't it? I saw. Yeah, yeah he's, just basically, he's just coming to help out. He just basically wants a few more trophies before he finishes. Which is fair enough. And you think about what they've got and what they needed. And yes, they've let go of Marcel Sabitzer, who has played more minutes than, for example, Ryan Gravenberg. But I believe that Ryan Gravenberg is going to start playing more minutes now. And you see... The, the youngster Tell, who's playing really well up front, they're still getting a very good tune at you promoting. I think they're in very good position to attack the second half of the season. So, yeah, those two clubs. I would give a shout-out to Leeds United as well. I think they've done some good business, uh, particularly like uh, Ruta. I think he's going to do very well. But, yeah, Bayern Munich, unfortunately. And it's cost them buttons. It's cost them yeah. seven, seven million quid on whatever they're playing City for Joao Cancelo's loan. I, I think an interesting window has been at Arsenal, actually. Um, mm. They've got in three players. I think Trossard is less of an interesting one. I think he's just a you know a good Premier League player who's like 28 years old now and addresses a bit of a problem that Arsenal have got in terms of like attacking depth and things like that for the season. But I think if you look at the centre-back that they bought and Jorginho, I think they're two really interesting buys. Uh, they bought a lad, the centre-half, his, his name's Jacob Kiwior from Spezia. Uh, he's Polish, cost about 17 and a half million. Um, but he just looks interesting. Um, left footed, which is always a nice thing. Um, and he, in, in the numbers, I mean, you have to be careful with, with numbers and defenders because there's just, you know, there's a lot of context that you're missing there and things like that. But, he looks like the kind of numbers guy for a defender that you would potentially take a chance on. I've never previously heard of him, but when I looked into him a little bit deeper, he looks like he's really good. I don't know where Arsenal found him from, really. Um, but he's an interesting one. And I think Jorginho, the reason I'm interested to watch that one is because Thomas Partey covers, 
covers a ridiculous amount of ground. Um, that's one of his main perks, his ability to manage like wide open spaces and things like that. And as a result of that, Arsenal can kind of really attack the final third, knowing that Thomas Partey will sweep things up behind. I think he's now got a knock, and El Nenny is now out for the rest of the season. So yeah. Arsenal obviously needed some kind of ball winner to just kind of sit there. They signed for Casado, didn't get him, and they ended up getting Jorginho. Now, I don't mind Jorginho as a six, and I think he's specifically very good with the ball, obviously. But against the ball, I think he's good, but very different to Partey in the sense that he's absolutely not a runner in any way, right. shape or form. Similar to Fabinho in that sense. Yeah, so, he is. I, th- I think I think considering that, obviously Arsenal are top of the league at the minute. They're probably one of the best defences in the league this, so far this season and things like that. So what I'm really interested to see is if you take party out that team and put Jorginho in it, what do Arsenal look like defensively and do they suffer and things like that? And I think that would offer a bit of an insight into Liverpool almost. Because if Jorginho just seamlessly slots in and Arsenal keep taking away and there's no issues or anything like that, then obviously their system is very, very good. Their system's, yes. you know, compact and um, united enough for, for that to work. But if that's not the case, then obviously they've been heavily reliant on parties' qualities and it maybe shines a bit more of a light on Jorginho's weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So that's an testimony I'm going to follow. And if it goes well, I think they could end up winning the league. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that they've brought one forward in, one midfielder, and one defender. Because like you say, yeah. they're all kind of just fortifying the squad, trying to bring as much insurance into where they are as possible to try and eliminate as many potential things to go wrong. <clears throat> one of which is the um, absence of Thomas Partey for whatever reason. Um I think what they will do in that scenario is that they'll ask Granite Jacker to do a lot of the stuff that Partey currently does. And they'll be asking Jorginho, who may well be in a six in terms of where he's positionally, but I think in terms of his job on the field, it will be a little bit more similar to what Jacker does at the moment, which is, you know, blocking passing lanes, intercepting and, and dictating more of the tempo, which is really what Jacker does in that side. He does it mainly very well because he's also got Martin Odegaard normally 10 to 15 yards ahead of him, who's normally demanding the ball anyway. So you can see a world where it's less, it's, it's, it's quite seamless and he comes in and it works. But two things within that. One, when Jacker is doing more of that role, more of the, the, the athleticness that you get from Thomas Partey, he's a little bit more of a risk when it comes to tackling. I mean, we haven't seen him get into much disciplinary trouble in recent times. And I do think part of that is the change in his role. So if he's at, at the cold face a little bit more, then we might see him make a few more dodgy tackles. So that's something to worry about. And again, as you mentioned before with Jorginho, he is a different player. He is not a runner and he can be got at. Teams have game plans to get at him and been successful. So... It's an interesting one to see how it develops. I, I'm like you. I think when you look at all of the facets of the deal, the fact that essentially, as much as Chelsea may have brought in another player, you are taking a player away from someone who's in and around you. That's good. It's not cost you a lot of money. I think as much as it might be high wages, 
when you look at someone like Cedric Suarez, who's just left the club, who was on high wages because he came in on a free. So it's not quite as big. It's, you can do it. And it's 18 months. So they're not tied down massively if it goes wrong. I think when you, when you look at some of the previous Chelsea and Arsenal deals and how horribly wrong they've all gone, I think maybe some of that is clouding people's judgment in this one. But I think Arsenal are better placed to not be sitting here with egg on their face in a year's time. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, well, if, if Jorginho seamlessly fits in and there's no issues at all, I think that would offer an insight into, like, it, it can be done, despite the fact that you've got a player holding the midfield who's, like, not physical at all and he's 31 years old. He can look good in the right system and maybe that would shine a little bit of a light on Fabinho mm. and maybe how we've left him exposed, potentially, or because if you put Fabinho in Arsenal's system, then maybe Fabinho looks great. Um Whereas compared to Liverpool this season, I think he's been expected to do a lot. Having said that, I still think he hasn't been anywhere near his usual best. And I think Bissetich has been better than him so far this season. Um, but we'll round up anyway by having a quick debate about, I suppose, what to expect now for Liverpool for the rest of the season. There's about six months remaining. We are 19 games in, so Liverpool are technically exactly halfway into the season. Um so I don't know what are the expectations, Mo? Um a lot a lot of stress. <laughs> a lot a lot of watching games from between your fingers. Uh no, honestly, I don't think we can really predict too far ahead. I think that in itself is the problem with this team, because whatever rebuilding has taken place, and I spoke about baby steps on the last show. I do believe in some areas the last game was another baby step forward. Obviously, a defeat is a defeat. But I think when you're looking at underlying numbers, underlying kind of structural things that are the causes of some of the bad performances, if some of those are improving, even if the results aren't, then you can have maybe... You can start to see how you can climb yourself, pull yourself out of this hole that we're in. We're not quite there yet, because as I've said, at the moment, We've only got three players who can play in this midfield system. And the moment any of them changes, it all falls apart. And uh, Steve Drennan, who's, if you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. He's he's very good at cutting through the emotion and kind of seeing what's happening a lot of time. He put up a tweet that I think is really uh, really instructive of where we are. At the 60th minute of the game against Brighton, we have 46% possession. Seven shots to Brighton's eight, two big chances to Brighton's one, expected goals of 0.92 compared to Brighton's 0.085. So that's a close game, but a game that we're in. Then the subs happen. The the percentage goes down to 40%. We have one shot to Brighton's five, no big chances to Brighton's one. And our XG is 0.06 and theirs is 1.16. So what that tells you is that for the first hour of the game, we were competing. When we had plan A, we were competing. We were doing well. We were in a position to go on and win the game in the way that we had previously, like I mentioned in those other seasons. But we just couldn't get it over the line. And whether that is just simply because the new guys came in, whether you can put some of that down to the changes Brighton made, whether you can put it down to the tiredness within the team, I don't know. 
but that's a very clear dividing line. Yeah, well, again, against Brighton, I, I felt the um, I felt the, the team defended better again. I know we conceded two, both goals stemmed from set pieces. Obviously, the Lampsy one in particular was a cleared ball from a set piece. He just hits it on the volley. It takes a massive deflection. That doesn't happen every week. No. So I, I do think that in the past two games in particular, Liverpool have been defensively better. I think the mid-block is much better suited to this group of players at the minute. You can restore the high press once you've fixed the midfield and once potentially some of the other attackers are back in terms of Jota and Diaz and Firmino and things like that. Um, so if we keep that for the rest of the season, I think I don't think we'll... I think we've seen the worst is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. I, I think the 3-0 the against Brighton that loss, I don't think it'll be, be it'll be worse than that now. That's, <laughs> that, that, that's the worst game we've seen this season. Um, oh god, I really hope so. Yeah, that was a real kick in the teeth that one. So I, I think for the rest of the season, but I, I think one of the downsides about that potentially is because of how bad that was defensively, we've sacrificed some of the attack since that game. So first half of the season we couldn't defend, but we certainly could attack. Now we can't attack and we're trying to defend. So it might be a bit less entertaining maybe for the rest of the season. But I think we'll at least look a bit more like a team, potentially. Um what would you be satisfied with? What would you what would you be happy with in terms of a finish after thirty eight games? If we look at it now. Liverpool in um, ninth at the minute. After I mean, 19 games, 29 points well. If Liverpool recover from ninth and make a daring stretch for the Champions League and just miss out and finish fifth, I'd still be disappointed. I'd still be annoyed. Because as good as... Uh, the, we can't just say it's all about Liverpool because part of the reason why we have been so poor is because other teams have been better. They have the ability and the right to get better. But I still think that this group of players should be within the best four teams in the league. And the reason they aren't a myriad, but they aren't. And that should be a disappointment. However, I think that we might just have to cut for that. <laughs> like, what I want, I don't think this is necessarily going to come into it. I think there's a world where we can quite still easily get to top four. Like, uh, I've referenced the uh, 538 predictor model, which basically looks at all club football since like the, the 19th century, like nearly uh, half a million games and plots. Um, it's able to predict results based on the scoring system they give to attacking and defending for each team. And then they basically predict out the whole season. Well, they've done that. And as it stands, as of today, they predict Liverpool to finish fifth, four points away from the top four. Now, Considering where we are right now, that does unquestionably feels like an improvement, but it's not enough of an improvement for me. I think the only way that that would be acceptable is going back to what we said previously, that it doesn't affect future deals. Because if it doesn't affect future deals, then we can just draw a line through this season and go on to the next one. Yeah, I think for me, I, I will be surprised if Liverpool finish above sixth absolutely can't see it. Um, it's possible, but I that that's as far as my ambitions go, to be honest. Um, 
In terms of the top four, I just cannot see. I mean, we're 10 points behind top four at the minute with a game in hand. But we just don't look we don't look good enough. That's the big thing. A couple of years back, if we've been in these positions, I've been confident that the numbers are good beneath the surface. It's a bad period, whatever. Liverpool just don't look good enough. It's as simple as that. We look about the ninth best team in the league. Um, and in a strange way, I think I always compare it to two seasons ago because the pits of despair when we were going through that run of consecutive home defeats and we just didn't look like, I don't know what we look like. I've never felt as bad about Liverpool as I did at that point. Even going back historically, I was just like, these guys have got no idea. I had no idea if or when it was going to turn around. This doesn't feel as bad as that. But the difference is, like I said, now there is a lot more threats from outside than there was then. We have to be careful as well because obviously if you finish seventh, you get put in the Conference League. Um, Now, I don't know what the general consensus is on that, but me personally, I would rather not be in it. I don't know about you, Mo. (laughs) Well, I mean, it depends, right? It, <laughs> I know you can say it's a trophy and all this stuff, but I would rather Liverpool finished eighth and next season have a full free, have free midweeks personally. But um, that's obviously that, that's obviously the better answer. I think that traditionally, historically, it's a lot easier to get back into the Champions League from eighth than it is from a Europa League, Conference League place. Although. That could be challenged this season if Arsenal and Man United get in from the Europa League. But traditionally, that hasn't happened. It, it is a harder way to do it. You've got more time to plan. You can do, you get, you get into rhythm, etc., etc. I don't know how much benefit that's going to be to a team like Liverpool because it seems to be whenever we talk about, oh, well, we've got plenty of time to have breaks, we can have one game a week, we end up... Not word, and when we're kind of forced into a run of bang, 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 game, 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 that's when we're able to find ourselves playing into rhythm. So it remains to be seen whether it'll be good or not. But all I can say between now and the end of the season is it's going to be up and down. There's going to be some good times. I do think that our attack is going to naturally get better. I think Salah's too good to be out of form for too long. I think Nunes is still coming on and I think that once he gets himself fit and back in the starting lineup every every week we'll see it better than him I think you can see more from Gakpo and we've obviously got the guys to come back so you can see a world where we're a lot better attacking and if you ally that to this still kind of more consistent midfield then we can look better as a team at the very least that's kind of like my minimum floor it's like we might not qualify, we might not meet our objectives, but if we're still playing as badly and as haphazardly and as inconsistently as this in May, then it's going to be a lot worse. Yeah, I think for me, just keep the mid-block, um, get the attacking lads back, hopefully don't suffer from injuries to the same level for the rest of the season, and... Do what you can to put in a performance against Real Madrid because that's kind of all we've got to look forward to for the rest of the season, really. And if you are looking forward to that, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I was, I was until the Calate news. Honestly, yeah. that was, that was almost. I mean, I, I said at the top, I'm a very optimistic, half glass, half full kind of guy, 
And I was thinking that Real Madrid haven't necessarily been setting the league alight themselves. So there was a chance. And then that happened. And now I'm just like, oh. <laughs> well, listen, even though, but we don't want to be too down, do we? You know, but I, I do think the next six months, it's, it's, it is kind of just for me a waiting game until Liverpool finally address the ongoing issue in the, the engine room. But between now and then, we will keep analysing what's going on and hopefully we'll got, we'll have some improvements to talk about. But Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries, mate. It's been a pleasure as per usual. <laughs> thanks for tuning in and uh, we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.